You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. There's a lot of uh, interesting pressure and insight that uh, I think we could give corporate America by being a little bit more socially active, perhaps. Um, I, again, I'm not, I'm not big in protesting and I'm not big in scaring him, you know, companies that we're going to not do any work with you anymore because you whatever, whatever. But we've seen recently even organizations like Walmart who pulled away uh, some or changed some of their gun sales and their policies on gun on selling guns and ages, certain ages that wouldn't be able to buy a gun at uh, Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart. I mean, that's I think that's smart, right? It's smart business. But again, it impacts because there are people now that are mad at Walmart that won't go in and buy their gear before they go camping because Walmart has taken such a stand. But um, there there are some things that uh, I think we can take too far. And one of the 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 areas that I, I really – I don't know what it is, but I think doing this show – um, and talking about a lot of things that 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 are hard, that are difficult topics or frustrating to uh, to people out there, I've I've started to feel a little bit of um, the frustration that that each and every one of us can have every day trying to deal with topics and issues that are exhausting topics and issues that really just slowly, I don't know take the wind out of our sails. And so I wanted to figure out if there was a way that we could somehow be better, try harder. And so I put together some rules that we that I, I want to follow to uh, to not be so toxic socially. And I there's about five different, uh, I, I call them habits, toxic habits that are stressing us out as a society. The first is overall all of us, by the way, not just corporate America and not just our president, all of us have this weird obsession of focusing on the me, not the we. We um, we don't even believe in our institutions anymore. We don't believe in our government anymore. We don't believe in corporations. We don't believe in universities. Every one of these these supposed institutions, religion, we're starting to pull away from and feel like we don't even need this uh this these institutions the, those institutions used to create the we in this country and now it seems like we're very focused on the me or the individual and again i get it every corporation every organization every religion everybody can can also you know lose their vision and lose their their sight about the the individual but we got to be careful about that another uh another habit that I think a lot of us have taken on is that we're so easily offended. I don't know what it is. And maybe it's simply we don't have the protections we used to. We, we've we got a lot more information than ever. But everybody has a chip on their shoulder. Everybody has, you know, a grudge, something that they're mad about and something that kind of their pet peeve that the minute that thing is played, you play that and it might be guns, it might be whatever, but we have the pet peeve. We got to watch out and start maybe – Instead of being so easily offended, just recognize there is another side to every story, and uh, it might be good that you at least learn the other side um, and and figure out why you really are so reactive to an idea. 
And it doesn't matter what it is. It could be anything that you're reacting to with really strong reaction. Remember, that says so much more about you than anything else. Also, we have another habit that I think is kind of toxic is the fact that we all have an opinion about everything. And the funny thing about our opinions, we feel really strong about something, and a lot of us don't know anything about it. You can have a really strong opinion and still be just grossly misinformed. All of us. I'm not saying you, I'm saying me, all of us. But be careful when you're really opinionated about something. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to people talk about their opinion, and all they knew were the talking points that came from that one side of the argument. They hadn't even studied the argument. And I think part of it is because we all can watch television and radio, and we have all of these people, even we on the show, we have opinions, and we're not informed on everything we have an opinion about. Right. We're not. Um, but when we sometimes what the people that we're watching on TV, they actually are informed. They actually have read some of them, by the way, not all of them. Let's be real. But they, they have a little bit more informed opinions. Um, some, by the way, are just biased and informed to one side of the opinion. But be careful having an opinion that's not that's that's not balanced, not that you have to believe it in a balanced way, but you have to have at least studied the issue in a balanced way to really have a meaningful opinion, I believe. So be careful. Slow down. Sometimes bite your lip. It might be better. Also, blaming others for our misery. We're we're big into having someone else to blame for why our life is a mess. Be careful, folks. The minute we keep blaming everyone else for our misery, it just makes us all miserable. In fact, we all have to stay miserable just to stay the victim, right? Just some habits, habits, toxic habits, if we're not careful, that will stress us all out. And uh, if, if you notice you have any of those habits, just know that people around you might be feeling some stress because of it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, we live in a day and age when at some point... You, you have to do your own thinking, right? You have to, at some point, not just take my word for it or listen to the party line or assume that your party, whatever political persuasion, is setting you up to succeed or even the talking heads that you love to listen to. Because, like, what I'm finding out doing this show, I, I didn't know much about... Healthcare. I didn't know much about single payer systems or any or, you know, the free market HMO model. I didn't know anything about it. I was never interested in it because I'm just an average dude. And the reality of what I'm finding is the more I study, the more I learn, the more we have guests on like Jerry, um, we are woefully uninformed. We have no clue what we're talking about. But if I brought this up at dinner with, you know, my family at Thanksgiving, I, everyone would have an opinion. But none of them would have the data that we just heard from Jerry. None of them would know that admin costs on healthcare go up 10% and that overall the costs of healthcare go up 6%, right? And so when inflation only goes up 2% or 3%, so something's not right here and nobody has the data, but we all talk as if we do. So why don't we all, instead of just spewing the company line or throwing out what one you know news channel is saying and... Why don't we just open up our minds and get actually informed? So I challenge you, all of us, to go be more informed. It doesn't ha- – whatever you learn in all of your information, but seek out some healthy, neutral information and gather the data and then formulate an opinion. And you'll be amazed, I think, what happens when we actually have an informed and formulated opinion. 
power. That's where power comes and an understanding. Instead of just – you'll see why the quagmire exists because people keep speaking without information. They keep using talking points handed down by insurance companies and political parties. Let's just get informed. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's a wave of anxiousness, worry, nervousness that's overtaking. I think so many of us, 40 million people now suffering from anxiety and worry. Just a a little bit of advice that I'm seeing a lot just with my own clients is this simple idea of quit passing this down or quit passing it down to your children without doing something about it. Somebody needs to stop the pattern. And um, again, anxiety, there's there's definitely, you know, we know that there's a genetic component of it that we do hand down. But as we just learned from Dr. Reed Wilson, there are so many things we can learn to do by paying attention to our emotions, by recognizing the worry, by not just fighting it and not wanting it and putting our head in the sand. We also need to learn to fix, to adjust, to learn to to manage the emotional side, but the options To me, it really – and the metaphor I use with my clients is when you have anxiety, you're like a Ferrari in a world full of Chevys. Everyone around you seems to be handling, you know, the four-wheeling adventure so well, and you keep overheating and spinning out, and you don't get any traction, and you just keep struggling. It it doesn't mean you're not a great car. You're a Ferrari, for heaven's sakes. It's just you may not be in the perfect situation for you. So you've got to start adjusting. You've got to shift differently. You've got to pit. You've got to recognize what aren't the situations or prepare yourself better for those situations so that uh, they don't sneak up on you and you lose all traction and all hope. It's it's some pretty basic skills. But again, I'm not saying you're to blame if your kids have it. That's not the point. The point is you as an adult can start to learn how better to handle yours. And as you learn better, you'll have better ways and methods to teach your children. If you have anxiety and worry, you can no longer pretend like you don't. You can no longer just hide away. If you have children, you need to teach your children how to overcome it by modeling it and by being a great example of learning how to drive that Ferrari that uh, you have and now that your child has. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you love stronger and lead healthier, happier lives. From the moment a mother holds her newborn son, his eyes tell her she is his world. But often as he grows up, the boy who needs her simultaneously pushes her away. Boys today face unique challenges and pressures, and the burden on mothers to guide their boys through them can be overwhelming. Joining us now is Dr. Meg Meeker, author of the book Strong Mothers, Strong Sons. And in this book, Dr. Meeker calls up 30 years of experience to share the secrets that every mother needs to know in order to strengthen or rebuild a relationship with her son. Uh, We appreciate you, Dr. Meg. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. This is, uh, as a child, as the only boy, a spoiled, rotten son to a single mom, I totally agree. Strong uh, sons do need strong moms. You know, they do, and particularly in this culture when there's so much coming at young men. Um, 
just sort of uh, want to take them in, in all the wrong directions and so many challenges. And, you know, particularly if there's single moms out there we, you know, who are trying, uh, you know, to be both a mom and a dad, which, of course, you can't be two people. Um, but they really need, mothers need to understand that the needs of boys are quite different from the needs of girls and that there are some very specific things mothers need to do to make sure that their sons grow up to be strong men. Um, who can fly on their own and who can avoid a lot of the bad stuff out there. And it can be done, but moms just needed some help. And it's it really, I, I, I totally agree. And we, we always want to like be, I guess, politically correct about it and say all kids have the same needs, but I really, I've seen it. And I don't, I don't know if it's my bias. I don't know what it is, but there's something about a, a mother-son relationship. There's something special about a father-daughter relationship. This opposite gender is so important. Um, where did you pick up your ideas? Was it being a pediatrician? Was it being a mom? Where did you get your insight? Well, really, a lot of it first came from being a pediatrician and, you know, watching kids and listening kids. I've kind of become a professional listener of kids and parents. And I saw so many differences, of course, between boys and girls. And then observing the, the dynamics between mothers and sons and mothers and daughters and, and fathers and daughters and fathers and sons. And I realized they're very, very unique differences um, to each combination. And, you know, in fact... Sons are boys are born from the get go very different from girls, and we we know there are a lot of you know of course they have different personalities. A lot of boys have very different personalities, but fundamentally there's a very big difference between you know the male gender and the female gender, and it's good, it's wonderful, and I think we need to embrace those differences and parent towards those differences rather than trying to parent out mm. what who kids really are. Parents in their strengths and, and, and develop that masculinity and develop that femininity. And, and, they're, and you know, they're very specific things moms can do for their sons. And when you have a, a, uh, a parent who's the opposite sex of their child, the dynamics are particularly unique. Um, and I find that, interestingly, for instance, mothers of daughters tend to be harder on their daughters than their sons. Mm. Um, and, you know, that, that's one of the things I found. Uh, we know, know that fathers of daughters, uh, for instance, tend to be typically much more protective of their daughters than they are their sons. They parent their sons quite differently. So the, the parent of the opposite sex of the child, that's a very unique situation and um, some wonderful things, but also some very unique challenges there, too. Hmm. Did you... Um... I, I mean, I guess, and you have children. You yes. you know what this is like as well. So it's it's got to be interesting to kind of see the academic side of this and the professional side as a pediatrician, and then go home and practice the reality of it. Oh, very much so. My husband and I have raised um, four kids: three daughters and a son. And my son, who's the youngest, is twenty four, and then the oldest daughter is thirty two. So they're grown and gone now, but we can, you know, I've I've seen it in action. And interestingly enough, as I was reading about a lot lot of the research and I was watching a lot of the dynamics of the parents with with my patients in in my practice, I was finding that I would come home and I was doing what I was seeing without even knowing it. For instance, I found that I pushed our older daughters a lot harder than I pushed our son, but I never realized it until I saw it at work in other people, and I was reading about it, and then I thought, 
this is this is just what I'm doing. And so it, I, it, you, it's hard to see when you're in the middle of it doing it yourself as a, as a mother of a son. Or, but when you recognize it in other people and then you bring some awareness to what you're doing, you go, oh, my gosh, this is what I'm doing, so I need to change it too. So I really do. And now I'm a, a grandparent. We have four grandkids. And, I, I, of course, they're quite young, so I haven't seen a lot of this at play yet. But it really is interesting to see that um, – when, when you observe it and then you read about the research and then that it's reinforced with your own behavior, you really realize what works and what doesn't work. And that's why I'm thrilled to be able to write books about it, because I know that what I write about really works. Mm. It is true. What are you, you mentioned earlier that there are some unique challenges and pressures for boys today. What are some of those that we need to pay attention to? Well, first of all, I think we know, for instance, that boys are much more visual people than girls are. You know, if you take a six-month-old girl and a six-month-old boy and you lie them next to each other and you uh, show each baby someone's face, they'll react one way. But if you put a, a moving mobile above them, they'll react different ways. We know that, for instance, girls will fixate on a, at six months of age, will fixate on a person's face. Boys are much more drawn to movement and activity at six months of age. So there's those differences. That means that boys are uh, very challenged by a lot of the visual stuff they come across, for instance, on the Internet and video games. And Mm. they're much more drawn to those than a girl would be. So knowing that, you realize if you have a seven- or eight-year-old son who's wanting to play video games, you have to be very, very careful, A, that you limit them, because he's much more likely to, to have difficulty stopping uh, you know, playing them or even becoming addicted later on in life than a girl would be. So it's very important that parents know those differences and mothers say, okay, I'm going to limit my son and I'm going to limit, limit the violence. Uh, same is true with you know, sexual stuff on the Internet and pornography and things. Much more likely that boys are going to get drawn into that. So those are the kinds of things, I think, that come at boys um, that parents have to really guard their sons against because they're so vulnerable for getting in, pulled in at a very young age. You know, and that's just you know, one of the things I think that uh, you know, boys are at risk. You know, we know that a lot of boys have have a much higher percentage of ADHD than girls do. Mm-hmm. Um, boys have higher uh, percentage of autism than girls do. So a lot of unique challenges that parents need to understand so that they can help keep their sons moving in the right direction and help them if they, ever, if, as, if they do start to get into trouble. I mean, that, I mean, you add pornography, you add oh. uh, all of the other things that they could, I mean, and even just other things, the anti your value system, your belief system, and now boy, and and in a weird way, I see my boys, they're just creative, they're curious, they, they just keep digging. (laughs) And when you're digging in the internet, you could find a lot of stuff you may not be ready to handle. Very much so. And they don't even need to be digging. I mean, it can, it can literally just sort of jump at them because a lot of porn sites are hooked to other sites that, um, you know, like different music sites. So if a, if a, person is on the internet searching different kinds of music some you know porn can pop up so we really really need to protect our sons one of the things that i have found is that um, mothers in particular and i i'm in in there too 
we tend to coddle our sons a bit. We tend to not want them to get hurt. We don't want their feelings to get hurt. Um, and so we hold them a bit closer, and we're very, very gentle with them, rather than, and this is important during the teen years, sort of cutting a little bit and saying, okay, you're a young man now. You can do this. You don't need your mom to do it. Mm. And what I find is a lot of very educated, conscientious um, mothers who want to do a really great job tend to overstep our bounds with our sons because we, we pull them in too closely, and, and that ends up really harming them. I don't, I, don't, I don't mean we pull them in too closely and keep them away from porn and that kind of thing. Right. What I mean is we do too many things for them, and um, that's, that's, that's very, very unhealthy. So that's sort of in the mom-son dynamic that you don't get in the father-son dynamic. Yeah, it seems like fathers maybe push risk and, yes. and, 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 and not unhealthy risk necessarily, yeah. but they try it. Climb the tree. Exactly. Climb the tree. You know, if you break your arm, you break your arm, you're going to survive. <laughs> Build things, smash them, it's okay. And mothers tend to, no, 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 you know, you don't understand. Mothers are more emotionally in tune, so, you know, we want our sons to just be sort of emotionally safe all the time. We don't want their feelings hurt. And so we tend to protect them in different ways, and it's not always good. And I really do think that I'm not blaming it all on mothers, but I'm saying this is a, a problem that we can tend to have, um, is that we have a hard time letting our sons go, particularly in the, in the later teen years, in the 20s, because mothers very much want to keep on parenting, and we very much want to be our son's mom. Mm. And um, that can be very detrimental to, to young men. Yeah. I mean, especially if we never learn to do this stuff on our own, if we don't, because it, it's just too easy to go home. Yes. It's very easy to go home and have mom do everything and have mom cook and have mom this. You know, and I'll never forget the day when my son was about 18, and, uh, and I worried about him more than our daughters. I don't know why, uh, but my husband was a very strong dad with our daughters, and, and, and again, as a, a woman, I sort of pushed the do- my daughters to sort of say, you can do this, you can do this. But with my son, it's like, well, I know you can do it, but it's sure nicer if you let me help. And I remember at one point, my son was 18, and he looked at me and he said, Mom, will you quit, quit talking to me like something's wrong with me? Hmm. And I thought, well, there isn't anything wrong. But what he was getting from me was that, you know, um, you need me to help you. You need me to this. You need me to that. And I got it, and the light bulb went off, and I said, I am so sorry. And from that point on, I changed even just the way I spoke to him. I started calling him a man, and I, I started saying things like, you don't need my help. You got this. Or you make the decision. I don't know what's the best thing to do. You do it. And I start. I made a conscious effort to push away, and it dramatically improved our relationship. And, and I saw a change in him. So a lot of those things are subconscious, and I think we mothers do it because a lot of mothers talk to one another about how we're parenting our kids. And I think we tend to, if, if we see our friends doing the same things with our sons, we're going to do the same thing too. And it's not always the best thing. Right. No, I think that's dead on. And it's, I mean, again, this is a learning process. Nobody was born with, you know, the manual. So that's why books like yours need to be written. So we know what's going on. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Meg Meeker and her wonderful insight around strong mothers, strong sons. Um, her most recent book, she's she's taken 30-plus years as a pediatrician and a mom and uh, folding it all together, giving you the insights 
that we all need. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. Stronger Parenting. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show, Dr. Matt here, your coach. And uh, today we're talking with Dr. Meg Meeker about her book, uh, Strong Mothers, Strong Sons, which is teaching moms about some of the intricacies of raising a son and making and raising them in a way that they can be strong, resilient, also able to uh, take on the world, especially in, in today's day and age when things seem to change so much from maybe the older ways that we were all raised. Dr. Meg Meeker um, also is a co-host for Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk radio show and is a fellow of the Academy uh, American Academy of Pediatrics, certified by the American Board of Pediatrics and serves on the advisory board of the Medical Institute. She uh, works with her husband in northern Michigan where they share a medical practice. Uh, her husband's name, by the way, is Walter, and they have four grown children and some beautiful, a beautiful granddaughter, Again, Dr. Meg Meeker, thank you so much for being with us. Sure, thank you. What do you What do you say going forward? What are some of the very specific things that we need to uh, focus on as far as the roadmap to to get uh, to get our boys from childhood to adulthood in a healthy way? Well, I think you know. First of all, when you think about boys as, as young boys, um, you know, the first eight or ten years of his life, it's it's very important for him to form strong attachments to mom and to dad, um, which many times means, uh, you know, mothers tend to spend more time with their sons. Of course, we tend to, you know, be around them more. And, and, but it's important that when dad's around for mothers to let dad come in and take over and do things for the sons, because as the son moves from 10 to 20, or really 10 to 18, the teen years for a boy are really supposed to be all about dad. So a you know, we hear in those pre-adolescent or early adolescent years, um, I think it was Bruno Bettelheim used to say that, that boys sort of kill off their mother. They emotionally <laughs> detach and wow. turn towards their father because they need to watch their father and bond with their father more to see what a man looks like and how he acts and how he behaves. So if, if, so for mothers to allow that process to happen, if, the, if it's a single mom and dad isn't in the picture, it's very important for her to look around for an, uh, a, her, her brother, her father, another good man that she knows so that the boy can sort of see how a good man behaves and he can emulate that behavior. And um, Because, again, boys are visual. They need to see wh- what a man looks like, how he talks, how he interacts with uh, the, the boy's mother, how he treats women, and that kind of a thing. So that's very important. The second thing, I think, is to understand that there's a lot out there that wants to come at your sons to sort of really devour them, i.e. pornography, the Internet, and um, a lot of, you know, violent video games. Those are the, the real big things that mothers need to be very careful about. So to in, in, implement rules in your home, um, you know, when a child is doing their homework and they have to be on a computer, they should be in a public area. You know, you shouldn't have a 13-year-old boy sitting in his bedroom alone with a laptop for three hours. You know, make sure that 
that you're putting in protective mechanisms for him. He can do his uh, homework in the kitchen. He can do it, you know, in the living room right off the kitchen while mom or dad is around, you know, making dinner so that it's some, you're just going to be much more aware. And, again, put some real limits on video games as they grow. Put limits on, you know, violent uh, movies that the boys are seeing. So those are some, some things that... And I know that parents think, oh, that's just impossible. You know, electronics are everywhere. It feels impossible, but it's really not that bad. Once you sort of push through those initial years of here what the rules are, here's how it's done, boys accept it, and they're okay with it. And they learn to live differently than their friends do. They learn to live not attached to electronics 24-7. So those are really important things to do. And then as the son gets older, again, it's very important for mothers to empower their sons, not enable their sons. You know, um, don't cross boundaries. As your boy becomes 13 and 14, start to talk to him as if he's a man and he is capable and he can make decisions. That That will improve a mother's relationship with her son tenfold if she treats him with respect and treats him um, more as a capable person, not as um, a person who's not able to do anything. And, of course, he isn't a full man yet, and, you know, cognitively, but if you start to show him the kind of respect that a young man should have, it will really change the way he sees himself, the way he sees the the world, and the way he treats himself and other people. Hmm. So so those are just some real key important things that moms can do. That's great. And they'll always, you know, people will say, well, they're going to see it sometime anyway. They're going to see it at their friends. But there's something about um, a child knowing that mom and dad are creating a really safe place for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I will tell you, it can work. Um, Absolutely. There's a very different... Uh, there's a very different thing about um, it for a boy, his perspective. Believing that what he's seeing mom and dad don't think is okay. If a mom and dad say, well, you're going to see it anyway, it's like the drinking. You're going to drink anyway. You might as well start drinking at 14 or 15 in our home, and we'll teach you how to do it. You sanction it. When you allow it in your home, in the boy's mind, you're saying it's really okay. It's not that bad. But if you say, you know, it is that bad and you're not going to do it in our home, that boy knows when he's watching it at a friend's house, something goes off inside of him that goes, ooh, this is not okay. So that when he looks at it and goes, oh, I don't really like what I'm seeing, oh, yeah, my mom and dad are right. But if a mom and dad say, well, you know, you might as well start watching at our home because you're going to see it anyway, you're sanctioning it. And that's a hugely important um, for young men. So, And I will say um, I... Um, I'm working with, I do a fair amount of work with the NFL just in helping them with their men and their parenting because many didn't have, um, many didn't have um, um, fathers growing up. One young man came from a strong Mormon family, and he now, I'm trying to remember his name, he plays for the Miami Dolphins. He told me that he had such a strong sense of community, and his parents were so, so strong, that when he um, got through college and he, and he started the NFL, and he first started to hear the bad language and see what was going on, he said, that was my, that was my introduction in my 20s to all the bad stuff that's out there. And he said, how amazing that my parents were allowed to keep me on the high road for all those years. He mm. said, that's exactly what I want to do for my kids. And so there you go. So powerful, isn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. and again, it's almost like 
we forget we are supposed to be parenting. Yes. It, and it's more like I want, you know, I don't want to offend them and I don't want them to think I don't trust them. But oh, it's, it's re- not about that. It's about, it's about protect that. them. It's, it's about not trusting the culture they're growing up right. in and not leading them into temptation, not allowing them to get in situations where they can't handle themselves. Mm. You know, it's like allowing a 14-year-old to go navigate London on their own if they grew up, you know, in Omaha. It, they, they can't. They, they don't have a driver's license. They don't know how to navigate. They don't know what to do it. It's not an issue of, of trust. It's just an issue. They don't know how to do this. So we need to keep them in areas that they can navigate and negotiate. Um, but, but there's so much that's beyond them, and they, they have no clue how dangerous you know, to them, watching a little bit of porn on the Internet is kind of fun and games. But you and I know it's not fun and games. Mm. There's nothing hell. It takes you to no good place. So that's why we as parents need to say, sorry, you can't watch that now. You that's can't, right. Can't, you can't because it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you down a really ugly path. And then we, we, we make a big effort, too, that uh, once we teach them, you know, what to avoid, what to look out for, and these watchouts, we even teach them how to respond when they see it, when they find it, what to do. Exactly. How, because a lot of times they then don't know what to do, and sometimes they feel like, oh, now I've really sinned because I, yeah. I saw something that mom and dad didn't want me to see. But So we tell them to then talk to us, how to turn off the yeah. computer quickly. Exactly. Just be open and, and know that it's out there. You know, you'll have an arrow shot at you just... This is what you do when the, you're, you're shot or even when you're hit. Exactly. And I think for parents to have the attitude, you know, I am my child's ally. Our, war, our culture says that kids, kids in the culture are the ally and the parents are the enemy. No, the parents and the kids are allied. The culture is the enemy. So that when bad stuff comes at your kid and he feels weird or he's upset or he feels whatever, it's the parents who are going to help unravel all of that for him you know he's not, we're not we're on the same team here we're not enemies and one of the worst things that um, a secular our culture does is teach parents you know parents are the enemy we really don't understand our kids so you need to send your kid into the doctor alone when they're 10 or 11 so the doctor can talk to him about things that you don't really understand parents it's very odd it's a very 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 odd culture so we need to realign that um, alliance, too. It's the, it's the kid and the parents on the team against the culture. Love that. Talk about another thing that you do bring up is the fact that um, our, our boys need to make sure that, that, or as parents, we need to make sure the boys also know and have and have an emotional vocabulary. Yes. That yes. They understand feelings. They are clear and okay talking about feelings and that they can recognize feelings in others. How do you, how do you instill that? Well, and again, you know, I think some fathers will look at it and go, wait a minute, I don't want my kid to be a sissy. It's not about that at all. Um, William Pollock, in a boy, great book called um, um, Real Boys, talks about the boy code and how when boys are in the first, second, third grade, they don't want to cry, they don't want to tattle, they don't want to say anything, they just want to stiff up her lip, and a lot of dads will go, just, you know, man up, you don't need... And, and really what we need to do is, if they're angry, to say to them... I get it when you're angry, and when you're angry, honey, here's what you do. So to help a boy verbalize, I'm angry. Okay, you're angry. Here's what you can do. You can't hit your sister. You can't break my stuff. Go outside and, you know, 
um, take a Nerf bat to a tree or something, but to learn how to deal with feelings so that they don't end up at 35, year old, 35 years old imploding. You know, and it is okay if they're, in, you know, in second grade or third grade and they get hurt or whatever and they're upset and they cry because they are sensitive people. But, but it, it, how to handle their feeding, feelings and how to learn what to do with those feelings, how to respond well, not respond badly. Hmm. Um, and so that's a very important thing, and moms can do that. So w- what we do when our boys are young is um, get them to state, I'm angry, I'm sad, you know, um, you know I'm, I'm, I'm feeling very worried about something. So to get them to verbalize and then to teach them what to do with those feelings and how to respond in a positive way and not how to respond in a negative way, that really sets a boy up for a much healthier emotional life later in life. Oh, and, and really, I mean, it's going to be demanded eventually by their spouse, by their yeah. children. It's just emotional intelligence, really, right? Exactly, exactly. And mothers are key in giving that to their sons during those first 10 years of life, A, because they're with them, and B, because moms tend to be a little more emotionally in tune uh, with our kids because we're just with them and we're, you know, wiping uh, knees that are bruised and bleeding and we're, you know, wiping away tears and we're there for all the, you know, the times that kids get banged up in life. So um, it's just more natural that we do that. Mm. As we wrap up, uh, Meg, give us what would you say if there's just one thing we should all remember, and and if we can with our sons as parents today, what's the one thing that you found overall makes the biggest difference, the biggest bang, the fastest as a parent? Time. You know, if parents understand they have the power in the in the child's life, they need to spend more time with their their kids. That's all they need to do. If if you're having problems with your kid, the 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 thing you need to do is not back away and spend less time and send them to somebody. You need to spend more time with them because that's how you resolve problems and that's how you raise a, a child with great character. More time and understand you have all the power in your, in your child's life. Those two things are the most important. They're very, very simple, but they're very profound, and that's what changes character. Hmm. Beautiful. Time. It does matter, doesn't it? Willie, appreciate you, Meg. Thanks for your great work. Again, uh, Dr. Meg Meeker, author of the book Strong Mothers, Strong Sons. You can find that at Amazon. Find it all over the country. You can also um, do more just by by researching all that she's doing. She's she's everywhere. You can uh, also go to listen to uh, Family Talk Radio as well. Interesting insights, folks. Just parenting. We're trying to make it through this. You can do it. You're doing better than you think. Don't give up. We'll take a break. Come back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You could be and you may need to be. It's your life and joining us today to help us figure out how to be a hero in your current situation. Kim Giles. Uh, Kim is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching, popular life coach, author, speaker, named one of the top 20 advice gurus in the country by Good Morning America. And uh, she has now been named as one of the interstellar uh, top gurus ever in this part of the galaxy. Yeah, you've stretched that to the point you're running out of ways to go bigger, Matt. No, no, I know. I need bigger. I need to. I need bigger words. <laughs> Kim, how are you, my friend? 
Good. Talk to me about how to be a hero in my current situation. Well, I've noticed over the years, and I'm sure you have too, Matt, with your coaching clients, that every once in a while they find themselves in the situation dealing with people that are behaving so badly. Oh, yeah. But instead of being pulled in and and reacting and joining them in the mud, right? Yeah. They rise. And in that moment, they choose to take the high road. Oh, and it takes heroic effort, And it's right? amazing, right? To overcome that yep. ego that wants to just slash back, right? But they <laughs> they do it, and they yeah. take the high road. And I'm like, you were heroic. You did it. That That is the hero of your story. It really is. When all you – you could justify all day long behaving bad. That's cool. But you choose not to, and you choose to rise and, and behave better. And we all have opportunities every day right. to do that. It, it's, and it's, it's almost like you don't have to want it. You don't have to want the moment. You could have a curveball thrown at you, but it's still an opportunity to rise. Yeah. Well, or fall and wallow and blame and hate. You can pick either one. In every moment, those are your two options, yep. pretty much. And and I simplify them a little bit from my clients that there's only two states you can be in. You can be in a state of fear where you're in a defensive position, protecting, promoting, trying to get what you need to quiet your fear. Mm. Or you can get in trust that you're fine, that you're safe, that your value is enough and that you have nothing – you need nothing – there, there's no need to defend. And from that trust position, you can actually show up with love and and really be the hero in that moment and not make it about you. Yeah. So you've got these two choices and, and really they're very clear. You know, <laughs> you yeah. know, which is the high road and the low road yeah. in each of but those it, moments. But it's the, and they're the difficulty. It's sometimes it's easier to just go downhill. Right. And just follow the fluids downhill. Always easier. But you're saying you might need to exert, make a choice, step up. Well, that's the key. What you just said is make a choice because for most of us, 95% of the choices we make, we make subconsciously. Yeah. 95%. We don't even – We're not choosing. Mm-mm. We're just reacting. And we've all got this subconscious programming that drives most of that behavior. And most of that subconscious programming is fear-based. Yeah. And in a place of protecting and promoting you. So it's not going to be good behavior. And the thing that makes our subconscious programming so powerful is that it's so fast. Oh. The second something happens, you're in respond or react mode yeah. before you've had a chance to think. It's automatic. It is. And then then it creates an automatic. So you're already reacting and you already have a feeling. And the feeling seems validated because you're feeling it. Like – like your feelings are ever wrong. Yeah, you're always right about what you feel. And so, I mean, I feel ticked and I deserve to go off here. Right? And by, by the time you're down the road half a block, you're hijacked and you're on the wrong bus. <laughs> totally. But you don't know it. And then, then you, you, you look stupid to own it. Like, at oh, that yeah, point, boy, you have to apologize. Right. Okay, I reacted badly, which, to be honest, how heroic is that? Mm. If you can stop yourself in mid-bad behavior and say, wait a minute, I let my subconscious programming go here and I re- reacted bad. And and apologizing in that moment, I think that's huge that's powerful. heroic. Absolutely. Yeah. Imagine for your kids to see that. 
whoa, dad just stopped in the middle of a ramp, uh, a, a tirade, a tangent, and just owned it. And grew up. Holy cow, dad just yeah. grew up. And don't you think – we think that we lose face if we do mm. that. But in reality, people are going to respect you more. Yeah. We did a segment a while back, you and I, about the the ways lying to yourself might actually serve you. Yeah, right. And and this, this is something that can help you change your attitude. So I had a situation where we, we were in a hurry somewhere. We'd packed up and got in the car and left. And 15 minutes down the road, my daughter realizes she left her homework back mm. there. Mm-hmm. And we have to have it. We you have to have go back. It. Right. And I was not happy. Patience is not my thing. Now yeah. I'm way behind schedule. And I realized my ego wants to be kind of mean to her about it, make her feel bad, right. really behave immaturely about having to go back. And so I chose to believe that there's purpose and meaning in what happens that there was going to be a multi-car accident down the road. Mm-hmm. And that daughter just saved our lives. By forgetting her homework. That's, <laughs> and I know made up some story. it's delusional, but, but it, I was so nice about the whole thing. Right. And, and I, you know, asked her to really be careful next right. time. But, you know, because you're making you it up anyway. Lives. You really are. We're making we're, we're we, making we have story. to ne- negatively interpret and Everything. generate a story. So if you're if you're making it up anyway, do it intentionally. Skew it. Yeah, because really our perspective on everything is story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That we've created. We just are creating it subconsciously again instead of actually consciously choosing a story that would help us have less fear and more mm-hmm. love. Well, you could have you could have taken it 10 different directions to try to get more of a healthy story in there. She probably didn't do this intentionally. She would have loved to have not forgotten not her have word. To not forgotten. Right. And so you can add more to the story just by consciously – Looking for more information. Or I could have just decided to see this as my classroom today to see how I could be more loving and wise. And, and, you know, our kids are here to teach us how to to grow us. Mm. I mean, I think there's much the teachers as we are. Absolutely. And boy, they're good at triggering all your faults and bad behavior so you can work on them. What would you say then as we wrap up, Kim? What's the one thing? That we can do this second to start taking our story back and getting more conscientious and conscious about what we want to become. In every moment, what is the love-based choice of behavior? And and you'll know immediately your ego doesn't want to do that one. It wants to be right and yeah. angry and, and justify. But the love-based choice is the right one. And – if you choose it, you're going to end up feeling so good about yourself afterwards. Trust me, it's worth it. And you'll feel love. You will. Beautiful. And happy. Beautiful. Kim Giles is her name. Go to ClarityPointCoaching.com. Again, all the resources you need. There's so many. Just go start exploring the site. Wonderful. A lot of free things there per pound, more than anywhere else on earth. Uh, plus, you can go to their store, their calendar, find out more what's going on. Choose the love-based choice. What a great uh, little piece of advice. We'll take a break. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. When we talk about life management or focus or attention management, I guess at some point we all need to identify, too, what we're going to focus our attention on. Um, It it was an interesting find. I I was reading a book called Essentialism by uh, Greg McEwen, and one of the things that he taught in the book is uh, the word priority – is a word that, uh, you know, we've all heard of priorities, right? We've got to have our priorities straight. Well, the word priority has, uh, by definition, means the singular one thing that's most important. And up until really about 200 years ago or so, priority was always a singular term, meaning you have one priority. But we live in a country, a day and age, um, a world that believes that we have multiple number ones. And we now have to prioritize our priorities. And then we have a belief that not only do we have more than one priority, we have five priorities, and then we need to make plans for our five priorities to make sure that we get our five top priorities done every day. And then that stretches to, okay, that's just your work priorities. Now you have your home priorities, and then you have your personal life priorities, and we then assume that now we can go choose what of all of our 15 priorities are the most biggest priority. Come on. Have we not completely messed that up? In the end, I'm convinced um, if I gave you uh, two years to live, let's say you had received a diagnosis, you knew you had two years to live – what would eventually – what would become your number one priority? What's the number one thing you would do if you knew you had two years to live? How would your life change? How would you reorganize? Now, let's, let's forget the two years. Let's just say you've got two months to live. You have two more months in your life of existence on this earth. What would be your priority really? What's going to be the key that – that report to your boss, you got to get that report done? Well, I mean, it's an important report. I mean, I do have two months. Okay, forget the two months. Let's say you have two weeks to live. You're down to two weeks. Two weeks of your life, what is the number one priority for you? What is the, what matters? Now, let's forget the two weeks. Let's say you had two days to live. So isn't it amazing when we shrink your life, your priorities get so clear. They're so clear. So you might want to just start identifying very clearly what your number one priority thing is. What's the one thing you would do and spend your last two days doing? How about your last two hours? What would you spend doing your last two hours of your life? Because whatever you do in your last two days or two hours – is probably the priority of your life, period. That's the only priority. Everything else, I'm not saying it doesn't need to be done. You need to mow the lawn, right? You bought a house. But don't pretend like it matters. It doesn't matter to the same level as your priority. And uh, why I bring that up is because if we could actually dial in our attention even higher – 
but we don't have our attention focused on something that's important, then what good is having more attention? What good is having more focus if it's not focused on something that is absolutely essential, right? You don't want more time, more focus, more energy on something that's not important, do you? I mean, I think all that would create for you is more guilt, more confusion, more misunderstanding, more frustration, more exhaustion. So maybe the first thing we ought to do is identify what direction we should be heading, what's our true north, and then once we know what true north is, let's worry about our efficiencies. Let's get really good at going the direction we're supposed to go. But a lot of us are are really just trying to improve our efficiencies, and we have no clue where we're going. To be really efficient at something we shouldn't be doing is just plain crazy. We don't need to be awesome at useless stuff. We just – our life, we don't have the time, especially if we only have two months, two weeks, two days, or two hours. You know, when we've got two years, we can mess around a little bit more, we think. But it can all change on a dime, right? And um, so what are you doing to make sure that your most important priority, singular priority, is first? Um, And, you know, how do we take these ideas to those priorities? That's actually – because I had taught time management. I taught communication skills in corporate America. And what I realized in the end is to make corporations more efficient, not half as important as making our most important priorities work for us. So anyway, we are uh, doing what we can to help you focus on what's most important for you. So answer the question. What are What is your top priority, singular? What is it? And whatever it is, I'd have it top of mind, top of list, top of your day. Doesn't mean you don't have to work. You do. But it also doesn't mean that in the middle of the day, you can't still take care of your priority your number one thing. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Whether it's the fear of failure or fear of success or fear of not being good enough, fear of not adding up, fear is driving a lot of our lives. And in the end, um, I, I really, I think that it's not, it's not our best self, right? I mean, our highest self is not a fearful you know, fret, fretful person, our highest self, our essence, the greatest part of who we are is, uh, is not this fearful little being. And so I think one of the problems is it's a, it, like a, our good doctor was Theo was telling us before that it's really just, it's a construct. It's, it's, it's one thing to be fearful of, you know, a, a, an animal that's going to harm you. But that makes sense, kind of on a visceral, physiological level, a biological level, you need to survive. But a lot of us are now misconstruing that chemistry, those feelings, and actually inventing problems for ourselves. Uh, I've heard people discuss the fact that we're, we're, humans are one of the only animals that experience chronic anxiety and fear. <laughs> we're the only ones that are chronically stressed. And a lot of us are so stressed about things that aren't even real. It's about possible things. Like, what if I can't get a job? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And we spend so much time focused on our future or so much time not getting over our past. 
and instead we just never stay present in the now. And I, I honestly think it's a trap. It is a trap that actually is designed to keep us from progressing and being and offering the best thing we can bring to this world. Because if I'm obsessed about what has to happen tonight in my meeting at 5 o'clock or whatever, then um, I am not here right now. And when I'm not here right now, I suffer and you suffer. And no wonder we would stress. You should stress if you're not in the now. I really think your biology is saying, yeah, man, you really ought to focus on the now, dude. Because if you don't, you're going to be eaten by a dinosaur or whatever. You're going to get killed. So we sit, we struggle, we obsess, and then we make up a lot of stories. And we actually use the stories without thinking about them, and we keep using them. Because somebody hurt us in the past, then we have to prevent them, uh, somebody similar to that person. Not really, but I mean, I see this all the time with couples where, because I had a bad history with my um, spouse, then I'm going to try to prevent any history like that going forward. So I will, I will tend to see everybody I date as somebody that could hurt me like my spouse. Imagine how you date somebody if you're always dating out of fear, if you're always dating out of your worst uh, kind of side instead of your healthiest essence. What kind of partner do you find? And what kind of presentation do you give if it's always a presentation out of fear? So how do we overcome this? I think one of the best things that every one of us could focus a little bit more on is let's start staying more present in the now in our lives. Let's actually be where we are at any given point. Let's actually be present. Let's, let's have our head in that conversation. Let's have our head in that game. I have seen uh, over and over with my life and my own clients that I am so afraid of things that could happen, but the reality is if they did, the worst case scenario, think of it, the worst case scenario of what could happen to you or your family, if it happened, you'd actually be, you'd, you'd get through it. You wouldn't be fine, but you'd, you'd get through it. If you lost somebody that you could never imagine losing and they were taken in a tragic accident, you would get through it. If you talk to anybody that's done that and gone through such a tragedy, they eventually get through it. And they adapt and they cope and they learn and they grow. So And so would you. Now, it doesn't – accepting the fact that you could get through it doesn't mean you love someone less and it doesn't mean you can't um, – that, you know, that, that life's not good. But wouldn't it make much more sense to instead of worrying about what could happen, to actually be present with the person you love today, to love them, to care for them, to spend the time, to deepen that love? And so one of the rules might simply be the minute you start to worry about the what ifs or what, what if this happened? Maybe that's a sign that you need to get in the now. Now's the time to live your life. Now's the time to experience and grow and develop. Now's the time to exercise your integrity. Now, now, now. Not tomorrow, not next year, not someday. Now, let's do something now. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. One of the things that I have found as I work with clients and we talk about their change is it's easier really to talk about what you don't want to do anymore, right, than what you actually do want to become. 
if that makes sense. It's it's easier for us to pick and nitpick on the negative, what we don't like, than it is to actually identify what we do like. And so one of the things I have found in trying to create change is to take more of what's called an appreciative approach to uh, the change. They call it appreciative inquiry. It's a form of consulting that many um, uh, organizational consultants might do as they go in and look at your organizational ills, the things that need to be fixed. And the big key here is to focus on what works. So when you have talked or thought about something, in fact, right now, pick something in your life you'd like to do better. Pick something you'd want to change, whether it's healthier eating habits, you know, being more patient with your children. What, um, what, what we do is we all want some movement, some change in our lives. And so one of the first keys to making that change take place is to identify what works. In the past, what has made it so you could be more patient with your children? In the past, what have you noticed has worked to help you be a more patient parent if that's what you're trying to change? Or if you're trying to change your eating healthy, uh, healthier habits, um, what in the past has made it easier for you to eat healthier? So notice what I'm asking you to do is go back to the past to where it has worked. I'm not asking you to go back to the past where it didn't work. Go back where it was good, where you were getting progress. What has worked in the past when you were successfully living that principle? What have people close to you or who? Uh, what have they done to live this principle? So part of the key is we're going to go backwards and up in the past to where it worked. And the benefit of going there is that you already have a vast array of information, of data from yourself and others about what works. You don't need to go put together a bunch of new stuff to do yet. Let's first go shore up everything that used to work. Then another thing is you're starting to work on being more patient with your kids. You can start to notice today what worked today. What made it easier for you today to get to be more patient with your with your child. So if in the past we start identifying a list of things that used to work and in the present what's working today. Again, you don't want to aggregate a huge list of well that didn't work, that didn't work. Instead, what did work today? Well, when I'm when I come home and I sit in my garage and spend a few minutes before I will run into the house and just find out what my goals are, calm myself down. That helps me go in the house and be a better dad. That worked today. Um, Getting some help and support from your spouse, that worked today. Uh, Noticing when I was starting to get a little less impatient and putting myself in timeout for a few minutes, that totally worked today. And then the goal would then be to identify what what would you be doing in your life. So if you had had a magic wand and we could make it you're perfectly healthy, you're, you're a perfectly patient parent, everything is going great, what would your day look like next week? How would your goal, if you were already living it, of being a perfectly patient parent, what would that look like in the future? And so now we can go up to the future and start to say, if it were working, what would I be doing differently? When my kid's pouring his milk all over the floor, how would I handle that differently? Ah. <sighs> Well, I would breathe through it. Uh, we'd calmly, if he had done it disobediently, we'd put him in timeout. We'd have a process for how to handle that. We would have read four other books on how to manage um, some of these behavioral issues that our child might be going through. 
but really starting to work through what it looks like when it when people do it. You might ask other parents what they do and figure out what works for others. So by focusing on what works, it's different than focusing on and knowing everything that you've tried to work on your kid. Um, and I know it seems like it's easier to find the things that aren't working, but the reality is there's a lot of days you're very patient with your child. It really is. And there's certain days that you're more patient than other days. So there's answers inside of each of those days. In the past, what has worked? In the present, what worked today? And in the future, if it was all working for you, what would it look like? Basic, simple tools to help all of us uh, be a little healthier and, and create better results in our own lives. That's what we're trying to do to just be a little bit better today by focusing on the appreciative side, the stuff that's actually working, instead of just uh, beating up what doesn't work. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. And today, I, as promised, I, I'm trying to help us find the good in the world. And one of the things I have found just in my own professional career that is, I think, under misunderstood and, and underestimated in their value would be the foster care programs around the country. And so I've asked uh, Mike Hamblin to join us. Mike is the Director of Recruitment at Utah Foster Care Foundation. Utah Foster Care is a private nonprofit with a contract with the state of Utah to do all of the recruitment training uh, and training for state-licensed foster care families prior to working at Utah Foster Care um, uh, Mike worked with the Utah Division of Child and Family Services and was a caseworker and then Child Protective Services investigator. He has a master's degree in social work with emphasis in child wife welfare. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. I haven't seen you forever. Mm-hmm. Mike and I, I used to do work and teach my own marriage classes at the same facility where Mike is, and we'd see each other, hang out, go to events. But good to see you. You're yeah, still working. Hall. Yep, still still have a job. It's great. You still you still have a job. Okay, foster care. Now, give us the overview because some people don't know what foster care is, and um, and yet it's it's happening in probably most of our neighborhoods. We're seeing some somebody helping, serving, doing something. Yeah, and it's it's not uncommon to have the situation out there that you're just not aware of. So generally what happens is that when there's when there's concerns of abuse or neglect that come up, a call goes in to the state agency. Um, to the, in Utah, it's the Division of Child and Family Services, and it's known by different names around the nation. And, uh, and from there, based on what the allegations are, what the concerns are, they'll send out someone to do an investigation. And really the initial role is to identify, is there really abuse going on in the home? Is there neglect? Is there a reason to be concerned for the child? And then the, the next step to that process is then determining, okay, if there has been abuse or neglect, what needs to happen to remedy that? And quite often, they can put services in place with the child staying in the home and just help the parents out to, to get right. the help that they need. But in certain circumstances, when it's, when it's deemed uh, too dangerous, uh, a situation for the child to remain for their own safety in that home, then it becomes necessary for the child to be removed from the parents. Uh, the goal is to have that be temporary while the state works with the parents, tries to resolve those issues, and then have the child return back to the family that they were removed from. Mm. It, and it's 
I mean, imagine you're a 10-year-old girl or a 10-year-old boy and you're living in an unsafe place anyway. It's whatever, maybe drugs, maybe just whatever. It could be anything, crime or anything, um, or just abuse or whatever, what have you. Then all of a sudden you're removed from that situation and put into many times a different situation, completely opposite of what you're used to. Right. And that's one of the things that has to be balanced through this whole equation is the concept of, you know, it's, it's, it's not good for a child to be in an abusive or neglectful situation, but um, does it outweigh the trauma of having a child removed from that situation right. and put somewhere completely different? Because the reality, like you said, you know, the children are in this abusive, they're in this neglectful situation, there may be drugs, there may be some physical violence, domestic violence, but the other piece of the reality is, is that's what they've always known. To them, that's normal. Right. And so, um, it, you know, most of us would look at that and say, holy cow, look what they're going through. And for them, it, that's just Monday, you know, that's yeah. Tuesday. And so, yeah, yeah this is a normal day. So, so it's not quite, I mean, it, it is, it's a, it's a, it's quite a balancing act to determine which trauma is, is more effective. 415,129 children were in foster care in 2014. Yeah. And that's actually a lower number. The state, the, the, all of the states have, have really focused efforts recently on trying to reduce the numbers of kids in foster care, whether that's working to get kids home more quickly or moving them through the system to adoption if they're not able to go home. So some of these kids get to a point where they they go with their foster care parents, and I guess eventually uh, their 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 birth parents aren't able to get together, get their act together, get them back, bring them back, so then they can be adopted by a foster care family. Right, right. And this is this is actually, it's kind of interesting. So I started in, in child welfare at, at the state a little over 20 years ago. And at that time, the average length of stay for a child in foster care here in Utah was about three and a half years. Wow. Uh, depending on the circumstances, you know, three and a half to four years. And, and uh, in 1997, uh, the U.S. passed the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which they they noticed that this was you know this was a negative thing for kids to just hang out in foster care. And the reality was, when a child was in foster care, we knew that they were safe. They were mm. with a foster parent. We knew that the abuse or neglect wasn't happening. So the focus was really on keeping families together and getting kids back to their parents. But it was based on the parents' timeline. And so if the parents weren't making any progress, there was no – I mean there was really no stick to get them to move along yeah. or no carrot. And yeah. So they would just kind of hang out knowing they could, they could get their kids back at any time. And so in 97, the federal government passed this uh, Adoption and Safe Families Act, which basically said that um, anytime a child's been in foster care for 15 of the last 22 months – then it's time for the state to move forward. And so they made it a little bit more easy oh, wow. to terminate the parental rights. And they just kind of said, it's not good for kids to hang out in foster care. They need yeah. some permanency, yeah. whether it's going home or going on to be adopted. And so um, and, and so every state, in order to receive federal funding, had to adopt something that would be in meeting with that. Here in Utah, basically what they determined was that uh, parents have 12 months to get their kids back and to work through their issues. And if wow. they can't do it within that 12-month period, then it's time to start looking at, a, at another long-term permanent home for the children. Are the parents able to visit with the child during foster care? Uh, yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah. And, it, and it really depends on what the circumstances are and what the risks are to the child. But yeah. initially, those visits begin supervised, and then they'll move to unsupervised before the kids go home. A lot of times, they'll have some, some overnight weekend visits mm. while they're transitioning kids to go back home. And, and really, I mean, in, in Utah, theoretically, um, for most kids, it's at, at least once a week, for at least an hour a week. And for the really young kids, they try to do it more often than that. If you imagine the bonding that takes yeah. place with an infant, you oh. know, once a week for an hour doesn't do a whole no. lot for them. And so they'll no. try to do it more frequently than that. 
It seems like it's also just having done some work with your foster care parents. It's a, it's a difficult thing because you bond with these kids. A lot of times you, you fall in love with them and then you give them back. That's hard. Yeah. And um, Or sometimes you don't quite bond the way you thought you would. And it's, it's harder because some of these kids are struggling because of their history. So, I mean, what's... What is it like? Explain just kind of who comes in and decides, hey, I'm going to be a foster parent. And and how do they make that decision? Yeah, it's a, it's really a challenge either way, like you describe. And, and it's interesting to see talking to foster parents. They'll say, you know what? We always cry when they go home. Sometimes we you know, cry, sometimes with cry with joy. Sometimes. Yeah. And, and, uh, and they do um, get to love the children, even the ones that, that can be a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Um, so usually what we see as far as foster parents, we see a lot of families that feel like um, they've had it, they've got, they've got it good. You know, they've been really blessed in this life they, to have a good job, to not have a lot of serious issues in their family. And so they feel like they want to give back to the community and help out kids hmm. that, don't, that don't have it that good. Uh, we also see families that are looking at to potentially add to their to their family through adoption. You know, the, whether for whatever reason they're yeah. unable to have children themselves, or their children are grown and they feel. Like, in fact, I've talked to some families that say, you know, we're able to have children, but we feel like there's enough children in this world that need parents that we don't need to bring more children into the world. So we we can take care of the ones that are here, and mm-hmm. so we kind of see a combination of those. And in Utah alone, there were more than 600 children adopted from foster care last year, and so it's not amazing. Yeah, it's not uncommon. And there's more children that would would have been available or are available to have been adopted that are waiting for families. Are they usually then adopted by the foster family, foster care family? Yeah, most most children adopted from foster care are adopted from the family, and, and a part of that is. Um, you know, speaking of the trauma of having a child go into foster care, we also know that it's traumatic every time they have to move. So if you're yeah. with a family and then it's like, okay, in fact, it, years ago, we separated it out and we had foster families and adoptive families. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they never crossed paths. And so a child would go into foster care, stay in foster care. If they were going to be adopted, they would be, even if the family wanted to adopt them, they would be moved to an adoptive family. And now, since we recognize the trauma involved in moving kids, yeah. Um, we really focus on families that are are willing and able to do both. To be, a, we call it a resource family. You know, be yeah. a resource for the child, whether that's temporary for however long that is, or whether that becomes permanent. And especially, uh, the focus has become, especially for younger children, you know, under the age of five or six, the focus really is on just finding foster families that are also open to adoption, so that hopefully they never have to move. Yeah. And with the older kids, it's a little bit more common to have families that that just foster, and then other families that adopt. Wow! It really it's so needed, and I and I, I just think I don't know. Having trained a bunch of them too, it's there's so much love that they have, and these parents. I mean, they get compensated, right? A foster care parent is compensated by the state to cover the costs for. I mean, but it's not like yeah, in theory, you're not making it covers an living costs. It's food, shelter, clothing, right? Basically. Yeah, it's we joke that it's uh, it starts at a little over fifteen dollars a day, and you know we kind of joke if you wanted to kennel your dog, you'd be paying twenty. So. <laughs> It's you true. know, you get yeah, it's you get totally less true. than what. So you, it's an act of love, not right, right. Sense. And so that fifteen dollars a day covers, you know, any clothing. There's a certain clothing allowance. Oh, yeah. A certain amount supposed to be spent on clothing each month, and so, you know, food activities. And we, as a private nonprofit, we're able to take in donations from uh, individuals who are willing to. Uh, help and support foster families. And so we we have what we call a wishing well fund mm-hmm. where families can come to us and request some assistance to purchase, you know, something like bikes for kids or um, if they need additional 
uh, additional items for whatever we've paid for music lessons. I mean, all of those kinds of things, all those enrichment type activities to try and normalize life for kids oh. that it, without support, um, the foster parents would need to come up with the funding for themselves. It's so it's so important. And I mean, fundraising. So if, if you want to, you can go to utahfostercare.org and, and just look at what they do and understand that this is just for Utah. Um, but there are other every every state would have some organization, right? Yeah, every state has organizations that are similar that are doing, you know, that same recruitment or providing yeah. some support one way or the other. Well, let's take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion about foster care and and the need, folks. Four hundred thousand kids need help every year in the foster care world. Mike Hamblin is joining us. He'll come back and we'll continue to discuss foster care families and uh, what you can do about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Um, I'm today talking with Mike Hamblin, who is the director of recruitment at Utah Foster Care Foundation, which is a private uh, nonprofit organization that's contracted with the state of Utah to take care of foster care recruitment and, and training and, and taking and just managing the program. Every state has their own foster care type of program, and um, I'm, uh, the reason I wanted to talk about it is we we hear story after story about all of these kids that uh, you know are getting in trouble. They don't have the support at home that they need, and um, there are answers out there, folks. But they also they need your help too. So if you're a parent, um, if you if you've ever thought of adopting a child or just interested in understanding the foster care program, as a foster care parent, you don't necessarily adopt the child, you first are just a foster parent. You provide a space for them to be safe and grow. Right. And then then once you once they're growing and healthy and things are working, you could maybe in time move to to uh, adopt if the child doesn't look like he's going back to his parents. Right. It just depends on the, that particular child situation and, and what's going on with that child. And it's kind of, it's interesting. There's a lot of misconceptions about kids in foster yeah, care, how they those. get there, you know, what their situations are. And, and the reality is, is that kids are in foster care, not because of anything that they've done, but because of abuse or neglect they've experienced. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, you know, we talk about the role of the environment in our development. Unfortunately, based on that abuse or neglect, uh, it's not uncommon for them to develop some behaviors which really were appropriate and, and were meant to protect themselves from right, that environment. Right. You know, if we've got kids that, uh, you know, that didn't have food in the home and you find out that they're, that they're stealing food from 7-Eleven on the corner, well, you know, okay, that's a negative behavior. But the reality is, is they, they needed something. They need to survive. Sure. And, and those are the kids that then when they get into foster care, you know, they're in the home and, and they're, there's food there now. But but they're not sure they can rely on that. They haven't been in that environment. And so it's not uncommon to find kids who are maybe hoarding some food or they're not sure their their yeah. situation. I, yeah. I um, remember – I'll never forget a little boy that uh, that went into a home and it's – um, it's kind of an interesting story that he uh, – the the family's home that he moved into is about four years old. The family's home that he moved into, they began renovating their kitchen not long after he got there. And so they had this pantry in the kitchen, and they took the door off it while they are putting a new floor in. 
And uh, the foster mom told me he couldn't walk through the room without stopping in front of that pantry and looking at all the food. And once she, he was playing outside and he needed to go to the bathroom and he came running in and he still had to stop in front of the door and kind of dance a little jig before he took off down the hall to the restroom. Oh, that's cute. But it was just, he just couldn't yeah. understand. And she said that, you know, when he first arrived, she was making him a sandwich or, you know, some spaghettios every two hours he wanted something to eat and as time progressed and Mm -hmm. and you know part of it was just making sure yep food's still available as time progressed it got to the point where he asked with the same frequency but she'd make a sandwich and he'd take two bites and then he'd be done with it and at first she was frustrated then she thought well i can put it in a you know in a ziploc it'll be ready for next time and and as time progressed and as he began to trust that environment then, th- then they went back to their established meal times, and he w- yeah he felt safe and he felt like he could trust that there was food that was going to be. Ah, and it's similar it's with other behaviors. You know, if a child's been physically abused, um, every time something goes wrong, then of course they're going to tell you that they're not the one that spilled the milk or broke whatever. Because in in their home growing up, when they're the one that did that, then they were physically mm-hmm. abused. And so why would I tell you the truth yeah. about something I might have done? I don't know how. I don't yeah. know you. I don't know what you're going to do to me. But it seems like it's a good thing to for everyone to learn that. Um, I mean, like the brothers and sisters, if you have children already and you're bringing a foster care child in, kids are developed. They can grow. They're resilient. They'll learn. They'll change. They'll adapt in many situations. You just need to kind of be patient and not not automatically turn on them because they lied or they stole something. Well, and it's amazing the progress they can make. When, so when I was a caseworker, one of the first cases I had was a um, was a. a boy who was about nine years old and uh, he came into foster care in the fall and so they did some testing with him initially at the school to determine where he needed to be what he needed Uh, while he was in foster care um, you know suddenly he had parents that uh, that cared about him doing his homework that you know that read to him that played games with it all these things so the end of the school year they tested him again he had jumped 20 iq points within about a six or seven month period of time based solely on the interest and the effort that this family had put into helping him oh my heavens and then you've told stories off air about um just a, a girl who had straight a's and great test scores it's just her mom wasn't healthy. Yeah, yeah. Her mom had some issues um, th- that led to it not being safe for her to be at home. She had, she, in fact, so, so with this particular girl, it's kind of interesting. She came into foster care because her mom got angry with her and wanted to talk to her. She ran into her room and shut the door the mom, and locked it. For the mom to get in, she tried to knife her way through the door and then lit the door on fire thinking she could burn her way through the door. So, oh I mean, it was heavens. just not yeah. a stable place. So she this, wasn't well. Yeah, so this girl comes into foster care and I went to visit the mom two days later and the mom tells me, I haven't eaten in two days and i said well why haven't you i said well it's it was her job to do the grocery shopping i haven't eaten in two days well she lived across the street block and a half away from a grocery store Uh. but she hadn't eaten in two days based on and so i mean some of these parents need some very serious help yeah Um, but the other reality is is that again some of these these kids are great kids and they just need to know they're loved right and secure and then have somebody i mean then systems structures right somebody that cares that can show them what a normal life looks like. Right. And it can take some time. I think, you know, going back to the example you gave not long ago, you know, consider yourself as a 10-year-old and that you're living in this environment, you've, but, but it's the environment you're used to. So, you, you know, you go to school, you know your teacher, you've got your friends, you know yeah. what to expect. And then somebody comes along one day and takes you away from that, moves you to a different community, mm-hmm. you know, puts you with a family that you don't know, with oh. a teacher that you don't know, in a place where you've got no friends. The smells are all different. The foods are all different. Now, 
Now, tell me how well you expect that particular child to do in school immediately exactly. or how well for them to adjust. You know, that's the last thing on their mind. They're thinking, when am I going to see my parents again? Right. What, you know, what happened to my favorite toys? You know, where are my clothes? What? It's um, so much. Well, and here, here's kind of the breakdown. So there's about 415,000 kids in foster care programs. Um, 52% are male. 48% are female. 39% are five years old or under, uh, 23% are six to 10, 22% are 11 to 15, 16% are 16 to 20. seems like the 16 to 20-year-olds wouldn't be as easily uh, placed as uh, some of these younger. Yeah, that tends to be true. Because of those misconceptions, yeah. a lot of families come and they say, you know what, I, you know, if a five-year-old, if something goes crazy, I can hold on to them and, and – yeah. You know, restrain them. But, but if a 16-year-old yeah. comes along, then it's a little bit tougher to do that. But again, that. they need love. And then you've given us great examples of um, of where that can happen. 20 uh, of where somebody can come in and adopt an older child and make a huge difference. 24% are black or African-American. 42% are white. 22% are Hispanic. Um, it's it's interesting, too. Uh, 46% are, are of foster care families are non-relatives. So almost half of them are non-relatives, according to this uh, national statistics. statistics. About 29 to 30% are relatives. So a lot of times you might get a chance to adopt or foster some of your own brothers and sisters' kids, your nieces, your nephews. Yeah, and that's really the first place that the state looks. Again, going back to that, the trauma involved in putting a child into foster care, removing them from their family, if they can be with someone that they know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and here in Utah, at least, and I'm sure it's similar other places, that those in, initially, when a child first comes into foster care, they're looking at, is there a relative, a grandparent, and or uncle, someone the child could stay with? And if there's not a relative, is there someone else? Is yeah. there a neighbor? Is there you know the parent of a friend? Is there an old school teacher? Is there somebody that knows the child that the child knows yeah. that's going to make it a, a more easy transition for them? Is well, what should we be doing? What can we do? So one, I think, I guess, is we could donate to the areas in our or, and get involved too. I mean, you donate money, but donate resources, donate time. I'm sure there's other things needed, clothing. I mean, I've seen at your offices clothing drives, all sure. these great activities. What else can we do? to get more involved in this foster parenting world. Yeah, we we always kind of joke that it's about time. You know, if you've got if you've got a few, you know, months or weeks or months then then get licensed, you know, become a foster parent. Look at what kinds of children. And and one of the aspects of that is as a foster parent, you identify what you're comfortable with, the yeah. ages, the genders, the number of children. Uh, and and it's never a situation where the state just says, "Hey, we're going to place the child with you," but they call you and tell you about a child's background, what the issues are, and then you determine whether or not to have the child come and stay with you. Yeah. So if you've got the time, that's obviously the, the best place to start. So then if you don't have as much time, then you could look at, are there places, are there ways that you could work with and mentor a child? Here in the in the state of Utah, there's uh, the, so for every child in foster care, a guardian ad litem is assigned. And the guardian ad litem is an attorney that is intended to represent the, the best interest of the child or what the child needs. And uh, and they have some folks that work with them that are called court-appointed special advocates or CASA workers. Mm-hmm. And those CASA workers are then assigned to go out and be mentors for kids in foster care. They'll go spend you know, a couple of days, you know, up to three or four days a month with the kids. Just take them out, do some activities, see how they're doing, check in with the foster parents. Yeah. And then report back to these attorneys so that they have more update information. And there's similar, similar programs around the U.S. with different advocates or mentors that can meet with kids and, and help 
you know, just help kids. At the same time, helping foster parents, providing them with a little wow. bit of a break now and then. I, yeah, so they can do any level of that. Yeah, so so anywhere in between. Um, and then, you know, say if you don't have any time at all, then, you know, pull out your credit card or your checkbook mm-hmm. or whatever. Donate. And, and donate. Mm-hmm. Um, or find, I mean... Find people that are wanting children and are looking at it. Talk to them about fostering. Yeah, a lot of people that come to us are referred to us by by relatives or friends yeah. who know that based on their circumstances, they may be a good foster parent. They should look into it. See, you know what, Mike? Huge. And it's important. And it's such a great feeling watching these parents and their kids. Um, thanks for being with us, Mike. Sure. Appreciate it. Everybody go check out uh, the foster care if you want to. UtahFosterCare.org is Utah's site. But go look up foster care in your uh, area and start getting involved. Let's make a difference, right? Let's not just keep being frustrated by what's going on around the world and the country. Let's start uh, stepping in, doing something about it. We'll take a break, come back to a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Boy, you too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um, when you think about it, if everybody has some reason to be a little messed up, right? If you, we got our parents to blame. We, you know, we've got people in our world around us to blame. We have... You know, somebody in our childhood that hurt us or harmed us. So then you look at these foster care kids who really don't have any control. They, they, it's not like they can just be positive and think their way out of this. They have a hole that they're digging and they need to get out of it. And sometimes they just need you. So seriously, Go evaluate if there's some way you could get involved, um, whether time, money, energy, whatever you've got, uh, it makes a difference. I used to do a lot of training where I would take these families and and just help them strengthen their marriages, their relationships to make sure that they were learning, you know, good communication skills so that it wasn't destroying a marriage as they were fostering and caring for these kids. Um, One of the things that I have found is, is key to parenting, as I coach a lot of parents and I coach a lot of kids, is uh, there's a few tricks about helping our kids believe in themselves. Um, a lot of talk is is thrown out there about self-esteem and kids need to have self-esteem and understand their own um, their own sense of who they are and and what they what they bring to this world. And, and I think that's true. Except what they also I believe need is uh, just they just need to know they're, that they that they're cared for that they're worth something, and I don't know. We got to be careful as we are working with our families and our kids and our younger folks, our young adults, the uh, those just graduating maybe from high school. That we need to validate their worth, not just their works. Right, like. We talk a lot about what our kid did, and when he's graduating from high school, yeah, he graduated from high school. He he was, you know, um, valedictorian, top of his class, and we talk about all of these accomplishments. But as soon as we're tying our child's worth to their accomplishments, we might be setting them up for something. 
because uh, most kids aren't valedictorian, right? There's one of those per class. So there's 500 that aren't. And yet, if that's what we keep seeing that everyone talks about, we start getting this social mirror reflecting back on us saying, you're not quite cutting it. We want to validate people's worths. And their worth is not just their works. It's not just their touchdown or their looks or their fame or the money they make. You know what it might also be is just their their work ethic, their their sense of um, care for others. They um, their inherent value just simply because they're loved by a god, right? And so validate worth, not just works. Don't get caught up on outcomes only. A lot of parents are, and it it sets your children up to not necessarily value themselves. Another rule is to encourage your kids by understanding them, right? Encourage by itself means that we get within the heart of another. So do you even know what your child's goals are? I have parents come in all the time and they tell me, I don't, my kids won't listen to me. Well, they won't listen to you because you don't seem to care what's in their heart. Well, of course I do. Well, not if you're always telling them what to do. So when it comes to your kids, if you really want to encourage them, you got to listen a lot more than you're speaking. And that ex- that by letting them express, even if their expression you don't like or is it, you know, it frustrates you or it's not motivated enough, it doesn't matter. Let them express. Shine a light on their strengths. Identify what they are good at. Go figure out. Take these strengths assessments we talk about on the show all the time um, and go learn about what they're good at. What are their character strengths? And there's we've talked about it on the show recently with Fatima Doman and her strengths program. So if you just go look up our our um, our uh, what are they called? Our podcast. That's it. Go look up our podcast and listen to them, folks, and go figure out what your kid's strengths are. Is is he intuitive? Is he hardworking? Is he social skills? Is he spiritual? And once you know what their strengths are, help them identify daily when they're progressing. Don't just look for where they're not progressing, which is so easy to critique. Why is your room such a mess? Man, you're reading a lot since you got out of school. Why are you reading so much? Talk about what they're doing well. Because if you pinpoint the progress and you know what their strengths are, you might start helping them believe in themselves. Heaven forbid. Anyway, basic stuff. That's the Coach's Corner. We'll take a break. Come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 